This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today uh, blew us up this past year, um, came out of nowhere for our lager issue, and uh, you know submitted uh, Pilsner and Hellas, and uh, Pilsner scored 98 and Hellas scored 96 with our blind panel, followed up with a 96 score on their Imperial Stout uh, in our Stout issue, and then followed up with a editor's pick for top 20 beer of 2020 sam milney of brick west brewing in spokane washington thanks for joining me on the podcast yeah for sure thanks jamie i love what you guys are doing with the magazine and with the podcast and we really appreciate all the positive feedback so thanks so much for inviting me we're going to you know kind of probe into the depths of your brewing mind and i can't wait to do that before we do it Nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with GND Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts uh, propel GND ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize like Russian River and Kasi Jack's Abbey, Samuel Adams, and a bunch more brewers you've heard on this very podcast all trust GND to chill the beer you love. Call GD Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, BSG is partnering with Leopold Brothers to bring a new line of small batch handmade malts to brewers and distillers. Leopold Brothers is a family owned floor malting operation and distillery and a 2020 James Beard Award finalist located in Denver, Colorado. Since brothers Scott and Todd Leopold first opened their doors in 1999, they've created everything from classic unfiltered lagers to a number of spirits, including a wide array of whiskey styles. Learn more about the upcoming malt line by going online to bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact BSG at 1-800-374-2739. So Sam Milney, uh, walk me through your brewing history <laughs> and how you got to uh, where you are today. Oh, man. Well, how many beers you got? It's kind of a long story. I've only but, got uh, one of your prisoners kind of... <laughs> in my glass right now. Um, and, oh. But well, it I'll is a cliff notes then. And if you uh, if I talk too long, you know, just cue the orchestra and, and get me off stage. <laughs> but uh, don't talk know, too long. Figured... We want to talk. We want to talk about brewing process. <laughs> yeah, also. Yeah, that's so, right. yeah. Talk, talk Pilsner, my other baby. Um, yeah, man, I think it's kind of a similar thing to a lot of people where in college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, I couldn't do math and I didn't like science. It's kind of funny that those are the two things that control my life now. But uh, so, but I knew I loved baseball. And so I try to kind of steer my path towards getting a job in a baseball front office. And so I geared my degree towards history, kind of research-oriented degree. And uh, from there, I got a job at an independent league baseball team in Indiana. And really, I, my goal was to be a scout. Like, I love baseball. I can talk about it all day. And I wanted to sit there and say, you know what? I can research World War II in college. I can research fastballs and batting average. Like, I just want to watch baseball, travel the Midwest, and get paid for it. And that never happened. But I did work <laughs> in operations. 
I did uh, find out I really love beer and I did meet my wife. And so that was all kind of a win-win. Um, and so it was kind of one of those things where I'm in the Midwest, I'm traveling around and I went to Anheuser-Busch and took a tour and it kind of just exploded my brain. Um, I loved history and I kind of always had a operations kind of maintenance, fix it, tinker with it, engineer, but how do we just mousetrap this, MacGyver it and make it work and, and create something I'd worked a lot of remodel and uh, water sewer utilities things. So I was kind of a build it, fix it guy. Um, so yeah, after the baseball season, I moved back into my parents' basement, started home brewing. And uh, then next summer, went back for the baseball season, did baseball. And then after that, the, split, the switch just kind of flipped. And I, I still love baseball, but I decided to, uh, to really try to break into the beer industry full time. And so, uh, yeah, by that time I was just going full tilt boogie homebrew like three or four times a week. You know, my wife still jokes. I think, you know, she'd close her eyes at night and we'd have carboys bubbling in our, every square inch of our bedroom and just going crazy with it. And I had two really supportive uncles who, uh, trained their livers hard over the years and wanted to drink my beer and kick me, kick me a couple bucks for malt and hops. And, you know, it was just a, a good cycle. And so I got a lot of experience homebrewing and I was able to get a job at Pyramid Alehouse, uh, downtown Seattle. And it was great because I kind of didn't work in the brewery. They had just kind of shuttered the brewing operations down to Portland but I worked in the beer garden, I worked in the warehouse, I drove the forklift, I fixed everything. And my wife worked next door at Safeco Field for the Mariners. So it was perfect, you know, I'd, I'd work the day, then go to the game, drink some beers, she'd take me home, it was, you know, wonderful. Uh, and so after working at Pyramid for about two years, I decided that I really wanted to get serious about maybe opening my own brewery. And so I moved up to Bellingham, Washington, where I'd gone to college and, uh, sat down, put together a business plan, you know, oh man, Sam, you're going to start a brewery, all your friends drinking, love drinking your beer, your shit. But then I found out I don't have any money and you need money to start a brewery. So I figured I better get a job and uh, hooked on at Colshan Brewing Company up in Bellingham, which was about a year and a half old. I started there tail end of 2013, beginning of 2014, I think. And so I started as a keg washer and over the course of uh, almost uh, five years, just kind of cockroached it, man. You couldn't kill me. I went from keg washer to uh, we did pre-filled crowler or growlers, kind of like an exchange program. So we'd have them all filled. You'd bring your empty one in, swap it out. Um, so we filled those and then I got kind of into the cellar and then got into Shift Brewer, and then we expanded and added a second location production facility. So then I went to Night Shift Brewer, and then I went to AM Shift Brewer, then I went to Lead Brewer, and then finally, telling you, you couldn't kill me, you know? And then finally, I had outlasted everybody except for another guy, and by that time, they, we became co-head brewers, each kind of respecting our own facility individually, um, but helping to manage the company together. And that was really fun. And then in the spring of 2018, I received the Glenn Falconer Memorial Scholarship to the World Brewing Academy, which is basically like a joint program between Siebel in Chicago and Domans in Munich. And so that was kind of wild. I had just, um, just bought a house at like three or four months earlier, just had a baby two months earlier. And so I said, sweetie, I love you. I'm quitting my job. 
I'm going to Chicago and then I'm going to Germany. So I don't know how we're going to pay for the house. So you're going to have to go live with my parents. My brother is going to live in my house. Uh, we're going to play musical chairs to pay the mortgage. And it all worked out. But yeah, so I went and did Chicago at Siebel and then Domans in Munich and traveled around Europe drinking beer while she's, bless her heart, she's a warrior taking care of the little one. And then came back and really wanted to look for a kind of ground up opportunity. And I linked up with the guys that were starting this brewery in Spokane and uh, said, what the hell, let's do it. So here I am uh, doing my best to make world-class beer. How did you decide on styles to focus on? And, you know, as you worked with the the folks starting up Brick West, um, how did you, you know, figure out a lineup of what the brewery is going to be about? Yeah, totally. Um, well, I had always really loved lagers. I think the cool thing about Colshan was with the two facilities, we had a 15 barrel system and a 30 barrel system. And so the 30 was kind of the workhorse that allowed us to do a lot of our production for cans. And then the smaller, small batch facility kind of, we could play around and do stuff. And so we had a lot of flexibility with tank time, um, not trying to just bust IPAs out the door. So we could really kind of try to brew some, some loggers, and that was kind of my passion before I even got here. Then going to Germany and seeing that, it just kind of amplified it even more. And so when I got here, it's kind of funny because I, I didn't know the gentleman that I'm working for now, and uh, I was kind of joking with them like, oh, let's see the business plan. What, have you, what are you planning to brew? Like, and they had been working with a consultant and it was pale ale, porter, stout, and they had to kind of put together this this uh, blueprint for the brewery. And I said, nope, throw this all away. We're going to make Pilsner. And they said, to their credit, you know, they had never tasted one of my beers or anything. Said, okay, let's do it. And so we kind of developed this brewery all around um, kind of two things, uh, making really kind of traditional German-style beers, ales and lagers. But also we have some really nice kind of, I would say, West Coast-inspired hoppy beers and hop forward IPAs and whatnot. But I really try to keep a balance of everything, but the lagers are kind of my true passion. What uh, Was there a moment that kind of drove that lager passion where it just clicked for you, uh, where you said, these are the kinds of beers that I want to spend the next number of my uh, years of my life you it know, was trying to of, perfect? Yeah. It was probably one of the many nights that I got to spend at Chuck and Nut drinking liters of their Pilsner and sure, Dunkel sure. and, and Vienna lager. Um, but really, I mean, I have always been a huge history guy. And so I, when you think about German brewing tradition and European brewing tradition, I mean, you have breweries, you know, written record all the way back to whatever, 11, 1100. And I mean, America gained its independence in 1776. So, I mean, they've been brewing beers for a thousand years. Our country is 250 years old. And so I think that kind of history and tradition was always really appealing to me. But I think the other part of it is that lagers are such a process-driven beer that I was always really captivated by knowing that these little adjustments and data collection points and kind of just things aside from recipe development could make an impact on the beer. And that was kind of a challenge at first when you're a shift brewer and you're only brewing IPA seven or eight times a week. And then, you know, you get this opportunity to brew Pilsner or Hellas or something, and you've, you've never done it. And you're 27, 28 years old and somebody throws you the keys and said, let's do it. It was kind of like, okay, 
well, I don't want to crash dad's Corvette, so I better figure out how to drive stick shift real quick. So yeah, man, that was kind of how it all started. Let's, uh, I want to uh, kind of probe your mind for uh, how you got from uh, zero to 60 uh, to take your car metaphor one step further. Before we do that, Five Star Chemicals and Supply is your leading provider of cleaning, sanitizing, and adjunct chemicals for breweries throughout North America and internationally. All products have been formulated with safety, equipment, material, and quality in mind. Are you a professional brewer interested in trying their products? Contact support at fivestarchemicals.com to inquire about a free craft brew sample pack and only pay the shipping. Just mention that you heard it here on the podcast. Cheers to beer. Also, Grandstand is your source for the latest trends in custom printed drinkware, apparel, and promotional items. They make your job easy by serving as a one-stop shop for everything. Visit egrandstand.com forward slash lookbook to see what's trending. So as you're trying to build some idea for loggers for Brick West and what, uh, what you all would stand for and what sets your loggers apart in terms of uh, drinking enjoyment, um, pleasure, but also technical quality, um, you know, what, what were some of the first steps that you took around that? Yeah, it's really hard when you're a new brewery because you have no historical data. So you can't say, okay, this is too bitter. This is right. too light in color. This has too much body. And so I think the first thing that you really have to do is just kind of set a baseline so that you can get some data points and then slowly build off that. And I've never necessarily been a brewer who really tries to fixate too much on, you know, little details in terms of what the hops beta acids are or what are what what the you know malt protein is but really looking at things through trial and error um and so number one drinkability is always key and i hate that the big brewers take that you know message and use that for themselves but i think that's so key is that you know when you're thinking about lager beer um you really have to gauge it through like the leader test like can you sit there in the beer hall and drink you know two or three liters. I, I hope my mom's not listening because she'll think that's a lot of beer and be very worried. But, you know, I, I think that's a true test. And, and sometimes it's easy to be too heavy handed when everything is amplified in these really delicate beers. And so I think that more often than not, less is more because you'd never want to get to that cliff and then have so much momentum that you go off, you like kind of coast up to it, stop, you know, and, and you're good. And so I think really having the ability to know your equipment so that you can start a little smaller and then kind of build up. So when we started brewing here, we didn't really say, okay, we have these 30 barrel fermenters, let's just, you know, rock and roll. We started brewing um, a half batch in our seven barrel, and then we did them in the 15. And then when we get to a place where we're kind of comfortable, graduate up to the 30s and the 45s and then just going for it. But I definitely think that knowing your brew house is what everybody says. But when you just got your brew house a week ago, like, what are you supposed to do? I mean, it's brand new. It's still got that new car smell, so to speak. So I, I, I think literally like writing everything down and we still do it to this day is like we're continually doing audits on ourselves and just kind of see, okay, 
you know, when you're five batches in, what were the first four batches evaporation rate in your kettle? You know, what did it look like in, in terms of your louder efficiency? How many minutes? What was your collection speed, collection volume? So I think all these little data points give you more jumping off points so that you can make adjustments to your beers. Sure, sure. Um, let's maybe uh, talk about it from the start. And let's talk about Pilsner in particular, since that's clearly you yeah. know, a beer that, that, that you're incredibly passionate about. Uh, and our judges agree with your approach to this. Um, you know, is there, an, what, uh, let's start with ingredients um, in terms of hops and in terms of malt. Uh, um, are you willing to share where you are on those oh, kinds yeah. of things? Okay. I'll talk about everything, man. I Perfect. I think, and I do want to actually add something real quick. Um, getting back to my uh, kind of brewing history is that I have always made it a point to discuss anything I can with professional brewers, home brewers, um, because of the opportunity that I had from the Falconer Foundation. And I really want to bring that up because Glenn Falconer was an amazing brewer who really kind of pioneered beer and home brewing before it was even cool. You know, I, I know that we're in a position now where beer is hip, it's trendy, but I think back to the eighties and I don't think it was so cool that, you know, those were probably the weird kids who were brewing beer in their basements and everybody else was kind of laughing at them behind their back. But I think Glenn made a really big effort to kind of bring beer to the scenes and, t and tutor younger brewers and really try to improve the craft beer community. And without guys like Glenn, I think that it wouldn't have this camaraderie and this brotherhood that it does. And so really try, trying to kind of honor his legacy and his tradition, I always am more than happy to bring um, amateur brewers in, home brewers, brewers and startup into our brewery to discuss, to shadow, to brew. I'll give them my recipes. Like I'm not trying to hide anything. There's, this is not the KFC secret, you know, blend of herbs and spices, because I think when it comes to brewing, every Brewer is an element to that, and raw materials are one thing, but there's the human element. And so um, I make my beer and I, a certain way. I'm, I'm happy to talk about any of it. Um, but getting back to Pilsner, yeah, that that is a fantastic standpoint to you know to approach this from, and uh, you know I, obviously I certainly appreciate that you're sharing with us and with our audience that you've shared that same kind of stuff through the magazine with your brewer's perspective. That's in our, our latest issue on Brewing Goza, um, but it it is important I think for everyone to understand that the level of success that craft beer is experiencing today is because in the late '90s and 2000s, after that first crash of the craft beer world brewers got together and said hey listen we need to make this entire category of beer better than it is so that it's more compelling to consumers and we're going to do that by sharing information with each other and that that process of sharing has produced a community making so much better beer and by extension then making consumers even happier and uh, making the entire sector of craft beer uh, a much more compelling thing and so um you know it is literally a, a rising tide raising all boats now oh, yeah. but let's talk about pilsner you bet. Um, in in particular um where where do you start as you're thinking as you're as you were developing your pilsner recipe totally so yeah i guess you know here i am and that we're going to do our first pilsner brew in two weeks and we're a brand new brewery i the first thing really i did when i'm designing that beer or any beer i guess pilsner lagerish moving 
forward is just, I always start with the guidelines. I'm a really traditional brewer and I try to fit within those guidelines. Um, but just like cooking, you kind of have in your head how you want it to taste and you know, kind of, okay, how do I fit within those? And so our Pilsner is a 12 Plato Pilsner and we're looking for about a five, 5.1 ABV. Um, so it typically finishes around 2.6, 2.7 Plato. And with that, I think it's really important that to me, a Pilsner should be hoppy. It should be the expression of the brewery's finest German and, you know, German malts and German yeast. And I, I think when people say, uh, oh, Pilsner is not hoppy, I don't think they've had really fresh Pilsner. And I don't think that they really understand what a true Pilsner is, because I think it's some of the hoppiest beers that you'll find in Germany. And I try to emulate that and more, most, more so than often, I feel like when people drink our Pilsner, they're amazed at how bright the hop character is because it's herbal, it's floral, it's almost, I don't know if perfumey is the right way, right word or potpourri, but it's just got such a bright kind of hop character um, on the nose and then in the finish, but that only lends itself if the, the beer has the backbone from the malt that can support that. So it's not necessarily a smash beer, but it's just one malt, Weirman pills, and then a touch of acidulated. Um, but we're really trying to basically just drive out every complexity from the malt, from the way we handle it in the mash ton and the louder ton. And so we run a single decoction, um, kind of just basically for our mash out step. So we want it to be a fairly dry beer, but we also don't want it to over attenuate. Just, we don't want the bitterness to be accentuated too much because it's still almost a 35 IBU beer. And so the difference between a 2.6 Play-Doh and a two Play-Doh finish really just, I don't know, it can become a bit harsh with the bitterness. And so really, PSA, pro tip, any lager brewer out there, steam is your best friend because with steam and being able to manipulate your mash rest, you get so much better um, consistency in terms of your finishing gravities because if you, and this is what we experienced in the past a lot with our two vessel system when I was brewing at Colchon is that depending on your louder and sometimes you just have bad louders, I don't know, it's, you, you, can't, you can't control it sometimes. And so the difference in a 90 minute louder or a uh, three hour louder, if you can't mash out and you're just converting the whole time, you're basically just brewing Bud Light. You know, it's gonna finish at 1.5, maybe even lower. And then it kind of just t tips the scales maybe in a direction that you weren't anticipating. And so I think it's really important to be able to have steam to be able to manipulate your mash in certain rests to really drive out the things you want, make your wort more or less fermentable, um, give it really a nice foam and get the body you want. So starting with the malt, yeah, like I said, Weirman, uh, Pilsner and Acidulated, and then we're aiming for a mash pH of uh, 5.51. And we found that that's really nice in terms of fast conversion and, uh, louder ability so that as we were kind of stepping up through our mash, we're checking with the iodine test. Okay. If we don't need to sit there for an hour at 64 C shit, let's just do 10 minutes. 
cool. Like we got three brews on deck, let's just keep going. And so I think that's really important. I think people all the time think, okay, I'm bringing a Pilsner. I need to go in at 65C, hold it for 90 minutes, go to 72. It's like, no way, man. And like if you're hitting your perfect pH and you have those enzymes and you're checking the COA on your malt and you know that you're in the wheelhouse for conversion, boom, let it rip. So I think that's something that's super important as a tool that not a lot of people use is just knowing their conversion rate so that you're not wasting your time. Um, but then we calculate our decoction, put, send over, uh, you know, it's usually about two thirds to the louder ton, leave a third in the mash ton, um, bring it up. Pilsner is a 10 minute boil for the decoction just because we don't want to uh, deepen the color too much. We still want it kind of a nice yellow without it going towards gold. Um, and from there we send it over and mash out. And then we really try to have a consistent runoff. And I think that's really important because getting back to that, if I try to think of things in a very German way of brewing, it's all about consistency so that every time you brew something, you know that if you're going to come back and do it again, what you did before you used hundred minute runoff. Okay. You got 2000 liters at 10.6 and your boil off rate is XYZ, you have that consistency. And so that is really important for us. And then, yeah, not to say we hop the shit out of it, but it's a fairly hoppy beer. Um, we give it a first word edition of Perla and Saphir. And then we kind of continue to layer those, those hops in throughout the, the remainder of the boil. So we'll give it a charge of Halital Magnum for bittering around 70. And then getting towards the end of the boil, I think we have, I've only brewed it four times this week. So uh, we have a charge <laughs> of uh, middle fruit and saphir at 15 minutes from the end. Um, those same two hops at five minutes from the end and then Perla and middle fruit um, in Whirlpool. And I will add that we did a bunch of tests on, and obviously this is all kind of coming up with all the IPA brewers, but just on um, kind of bitterness and conversion from the Whirlpool because the Whirlpool charge is not huge, but it's still substantial. And we have a three vessel brew house and it's mash ton, louder ton, combination kettle Whirlpool. Um, and so really when you end the boil, you're still within that vessel. It's like a tea kettle, you know, it's hundred C until the temperature can naturally come down. And so if you added those hops right away, they're essentially just a, you know, a one minute addition. And so really we try to let it spin for about five minutes, um, just to kind of cool down a little bit. And then we'll add our hops and spin five more minutes. Um, but one thing that I think is really important for brewing Pilsner and, and really all lagers is when you have one that's as pale as Pilsner or Hellas and you're only using these really low color malts is just minimizing the time that it's in the whirlpool before you knock out and then knock, knocking out as fast as possible so that you have as little possibility of DMS as possible. And so we aim for 15 barrels to be through the whirlpool, the rest and knocked out to the fermenter. And that, the goal is always an hour. Um, sometimes it can go a little bit longer than that, but I mean, I know when we brew an IPA, it's 30 minutes of whirlpool, 30 minutes rest, 40 minutes knockout. And so that's, we're flying out of the kettle on Pilsner just cause we really want to be careful about, uh, the DMS mostly because 
for obvious reasons, but more than anything, I think they did studies um, in that new IPA book about how in terms of hop flavor and aroma, the smallest amount of DMS can really change the way that's perceived. And for such a bright beer as our Pilsner, even, even if you couldn't smell the DMS, it would change how those hops were coming across. And so we're really cognizant of trying to just avoid that everywhere on every brew, even when we're brewing darker beers, beers like Dunkel or Doppelbach that have those higher kiln malts, we still just try to fly through the whirlpool, through the rest and knock out as fast as possible, which can be a challenge. And we've had to kind of engineer our brewery to be able to do that because we knock out all the way down um, for our German Pilsner down to seven and a half C. And so if you didn't have, uh, if you were only relying on city water, that would be impossible depending on your pump speed and your work temperature. Um, so we have a cold liquor tank at two and a half Celsius and then a dual stage heat exchanger. And we're also using glycol. So I just knocked out a Czech style pills today and we got it down to five and a half in that same time. What kind of percentage, um, you know, it's hot side. And then what kind of percentage of, of hops would generally go into the, the whirlpool side for you? Totally. So there's no dry hops in pills. You don't only, dry up, right? Okay. Yeah, no, no dry hops in that beer. Um, only whirlpool, and because it's such a, a delicate beer, we're going pretty heavy on the hops. I'm, I don't know the rate off the top of my head, but um, I think it's like the 15 minute and down. I think is about six thousand total grams for a 15 barrel batch. So we can do the ratios, but yeah. It's a lot of hops. How and so how much of the total overall hops is going into Whirlpool versus during the boil? Oh, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I would say about um a third of the hops are going into the Whirlpool. That's a pretty hefty kind of late hop addition there. And that's yeah, that you that you're finding is driving that kind of uh aromatic component to these. Yeah, it's the OG West Coast IPA, you know, it's dry, <laughs> it's got bitterness, yeah. it's it's light yellow, it's hoppy. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that, and then I think really uh, delicate fermentation because when you smell an IPA fermentation, the bucket smells amazing. And all those hop flavors are just getting volatized into the air, which sucks because if you're smelling it in the air, it's not in the beer. Um, but I think when you stick your head in the bucket of the lager blow off, it smells like, you know, dirty sock. And that's just because <laughs> it's going so slow and so methodical. And so right. really it's not vigorous enough to kind of volatize some of these more delicate hop flavors and aromas. And we're really keeping them in the beer. At least, you know, that's my gut feeling. I, there's probably a hop scientist out there that says, Sam, it's actually because of this and this, but you know, that's at least what I believe. That's your, uh, your old wives tale, your, uh, your <laughs> shared knowledge. Um, let's talk a little bit about that dirty socks character, because obviously sulfur is, uh, an interesting part of the overall kind of lager uh, flavor profile. Before we do that, ABS commercial is excited to be a part of today's podcast. ABS is a full brewery outfitter offering brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts. ABS wanted to do something fun for the craft beer industry, so they're giving away an ABS Keg Viking Keg Washer live on December 5th, with, which also happens to be National Repeal Day. To enter, go to www.abs-commercial.com, click on the Keg Viking page, and fill out the contest form 
for your chance to win. Also, Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions give you a year of the print and digital editions of the magazine, plus access to our library of video courses, a special deep dive email only for all-access subscribers, premium content, and all-access exclusive merchandise. Subscribers are the first to see every new issue, including our annual Best in Beer issue that's out now and which features... One of Sam's uh, beers, his uh, Get Right Goza, as one of our editor's picks for 20 best beers of 2020, along with a brewer's perspective from Sam and a recipe for that very beer. Thank you, Sam. Um, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button to join now. That was my uh, yeah clever uh, self-promotional angle to tie all of this in. Um, yeah. But let's let's talk about sulfur as a component in uh, you know in Pilsner and then lagers in general. Um, it is a maligned thing. Uh, certainly, it is an element that gives uh, you know Pilsner its signature Pilsner flavor and character. Um, you know, there are certain folks which has have a sensitivity towards it and uh, do not appreciate it as much as others. Or then there's folks like uh, Stan Hieronymus who talk uh, to me about just how much they love that character uh, in their uh, how, Where do you come down on that? And what do you do to kind of massage and make that character uh, in the finished beer a pleasant and uh, dialed elements to it? Totally. Yeah, I think sulfur is kind of, uh, you, you fall on one side of the fence or the other. There's no middle ground. But I think it's also a cultural thing because if you go to any beer hall in Munich and you're drinking a Helles, odds are there's fairly pronounced sulfur. And I think people expect to have the sulfur. And so if it wasn't there, they'd almost be more surprised than if it was. But here in the States, uh, just with kind of our brewing history and the beers that were kind of the lager beer, especially that was served before craft beer and really, brewing really got big, you know, no, no sulfur, very clean, very dry. Um, but for us really, especially in Pilsner, we, we try to not have too much sulfur. Um, and that comes down to just the fermentation profile and the conditioning. So getting kind of the, the tail end of brewing a, a great lager, not even the tail end, probably the most important part of it is just really knowing how to use your yeast and manipulate it to get that clean profile you want. Um, I think the sulfur is almost like uh, diacetyl in uh, Pilsner or Kell. It's like, would, would it be that beer if it didn't have it? You know, some people like it, some people hate it. Um, are you brewing a, tr a true Pilsner Urkel clone if you don't have the diacetyl? I, I, I don't know. Um, and so for us, we, we try to really minimize any sulfur or any off flavors just because I, I want to make beer that everybody loves. And I would hate for somebody to say like, oh, hey, Susie, don't drink that beer. It has so much sulfur. But I really like, you know, XYZ's Pilsner instead. Um, and, and so for us, I think it's kind of one of those things where we, we want ours to be as clean as possible. And for us, obviously, we've talked about minimizing the DMS, um, no diacetyl, and very little sulfur. And I think that comes down to, you know, in brewing a lager, yeast is your best friend. Um, and I think you have to be really nice to it and know how to talk nice to it, talk dirty to it, you know, give it a little slap on the behind and say, let's go, buddy, let's do this. But there's... um kind of the analogy that I like to make when I'm talking to people about lager brewing and especially from the fermentation side, there's a really famous pit master in Austin named Aaron Franklin, and he's like the king of brisket. And so when you watch him uh, in a video talk about how he trims a brisket, everything 
is with the sole purpose of making it as aerodynamic as possible for the smoke. And so not to say we're taking that same mindset, but we're trying to do everything we can um, from a wort standpoint to a fermentation standpoint to a maturation standpoint to put the yeast in the best position to succeed, you know? So we're not trying to overwhelm it with, you know, too many nutrients. We're not trying to overwhelm it with too much hops or, or bitterness or gravity. And so really it's knowing A, how your yeast reacts to different circumstances, and then B, knowing that, okay, I don't have maybe the most vital yeast. I'm not repitching this, you know, I need to move on. And so it's kind of, doing all these little checks in terms of lab to say, okay, this is my spec for Pilsner knockout cell count. I want, you know, a mil to a mil and a half per degree Play-Doh. Uh, okay, I'm only at half of that. I need to pitch more and I need to stain and check my vit vitality. And I feel like a lot of breweries aren't doing that, which is a, you know, it's sh not shocking, but I think it's something that you can easily do and it just gives you even more peace of mind. Um, and then again, just being easy on it, we knock out around seven. Um, we let it free rise to about nine and a half just because I don't trust any thermometer. So if it's at nine and a half, I assume we're fermenting around 10 C. And then from there, we'll another little important test that we always try to do that I encourage people to do is on day two, pull a force firm sample or a attenuation limit test and basically run that small little mini fermentation on a shaker table or a stir plate and that will be done in a day or two and that's a really good way to check okay my beer finished at two and a half right on spec i can keep you know proceed with my fermentation as normal otherwise boom it's at five well, we brew this beer a hundred times and that's never happened that's a red flag and so kind of that's a, a quick little test that you can do to, to help you but Around halfway through terminal gravity, we allow the beer to free rise to 12C. So if our knockout Play-Doh is 12, at 6, we cut the glycol, allow it to free rise to 12. And then from there, we kind of do one of two things depending on the beer, but we'll keep using Pilsner as an example. For Pilsner, we let it free ride all the way down to um, its terminal gravity, and then we'll... Uh, cap the tank. We'll harvest the yeast, do a fermentation of about 10% of that volume, and then we'll essentially run a little Kreuzen. Um, on other beers, we'll, based on where the first force firm sample is, we'll basically bung about one to one and a half Play-Doh above terminal gravity um, and spun the tank for our CO2. But we've really been playing around with this kind of Kreuzen technique, and it's it's amazing, man. It's 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 really fun and the added bonus is you have even more beer in your fermenter when you're done so that's always good but it gives you it's all think of it as like you know you have bottle conditioning you have keg conditioning this is just tank conditioning when and when you say it that way it seems so simple but people rarely do it and it's really easy you just kind of have to line things up with your schedule the right way um and then yeah it works out really nicely for folks that aren't familiar with what that process exactly looks like explain that explain that to me okay yeah so um for us yeah and what we're doing is i think it's kind of a modified 
Preussening um, program because depending on the brewer you talk to, depending on the old German textbook that you read, everybody's kind of doing it a little bit differently. And we're doing uh, the majority of our lagering and maturation in cylindroconicals. Um, so that's one thing to point out. Just we're, we're not transferring to horizontals or anything. We're doing it on the one tank and then we'll transfer to a bright for maybe a little bit of maturation and, and uh, kind of clarity and packaging. But essentially croissoning, we uh, let the beer ride all the way to terminal. And then based on the volume of that beer, let's say uh, it's 45 barrels, we're basically calculating how much actively fermenting wort at a certain Play-Doh we would need to add to that beer, the totally fermented beer, in order to generate enough carbonation in a, in a cap tank to bring it up to one bar, 15 PSI, so that when the beer is all the way done, we haven't added any CO2 and we're packaging at 2.7 volumes. And so basically we basically just brew a little mini batch of Pilsner, really it's about eight barrels is what our calculation came to. And it's typically on day three um, when the Croissant batch is about eight Play-Doh, we'll send it over, it's in high Croissant, like just totally going. Um, uh, we do a force firm on that beer. We do a active cell count on that beer, check the vitality, check the cell count, make sure it's you know really peaking. And then we'll send it over to the, the main batch that's at its terminal, put on our spending valve. And yeah, it's really fun. It takes about two more days to go and we're doing it pretty low, but with lager yeast, we found that it can ferment down like into the five, six is no problem, probably even lower than that. Um, so you shouldn't be scared about if your batch is a little bit cooler um, fermenting that temperature because it, it should work. What is the benefit of doing that with beer at high Kreuzen versus, um, you know, simply spending a tank, um, you know, that's still actively fermenting towards the end of its own fermentation? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. It's because we're always running out of beer. And so <laughs> if there's like 15% headspace in that tank, we're just trying to fill it up. But I, I think more than anything, it gets back to, I want to be as traditional as possible. And I love... You know, I love brewing and I love kind of learning new processes and trying new things. And more than anything, I think sometimes you can, you know, overdo it or underdo it. And I don't know if it's just me, but uh, think about what spooning is, right? You're creating a lot of pressure in that tank um, for those yeast cells for one, one and a half Play-Doh. And then depending on where you're harvesting, what the temperature is, I mean, it's not a not stressful environment, if that makes any sense, you know? And so I think more than anything, when you're croissoning, you know that you have, with the croissant wort, a really healthy, vital yeast. It's really attenuating well. Your main batch has already fully attenuated. And then you're basically able to just bring it up to really, it's, uh, really soft, I would say, because you th want to think about things like foam and hops and so and yeast vitality. So being able to just over the course of two days, slowly bring this pressure up to one bar versus, you know, when you spoon, we typically are at one bar, like, you know, three, uh, three tenths of a Play-Doh in, 
And so it's carrying out uh, a full degree of attenuation under one bar, which for certain yeast might be better or worse. And at this point, we're not worried about esters. But again, it's fun too. I'm like, I love brewing. And if there's another like beer yeah. that I can brew to make my other beer more, oh man, I'm all about that. <laughs> Um, how long do you, uh, to, or sorry, we actually haven't even talked about the yeast that you use and, and why you chose that yeast sample or totally, that uh, yeah. yeast variety. We roll with the, the Weinstefan strain 3470. We get the culture from Y yeast. I think it's 2124 is their, uh, name for it. And I'm kind of, when it comes to yeast, I like the tried and true, not the wild card. So ales, 1056, lagers, 3470. And I feel like it's really robust because you can put it in almost any environment and it will usually do what it's supposed to do. We've used lager strains in the past and they're good. They make a nice beer, but some are just malt monsters and you drink the beer said where all the hops go. Some are the opposite. You know, maybe they over attenuate and accentuate the bitterness and then the hops are kind of off. And I feel like 3470 is a really nice balance of, you know, attenuation and flocculation, because I think it's important to really think about Pilsner from, at least from my perspective, I'm really traditional. I know there are fucking hazy Pilsners out there. Um, it's called the Keller <laughs> beer people, but, uh, you know, we want ours totally brilliant. Like, you know, uh, maybe like a cell in there per milliliter, but I think we want to do that without any filtration. You know, we don't want to strip the beer of anything. And so it's really hard to get these kind of powdery lager strains sometimes totally clear. Um, and just through a couple variables, oxygen, um, calcium, and then kind of finings and hops, depending on the beer, we're typically able to get it like totally brilliantly clear as if we were filtering. We have a filter, a really nice lenticular filter. You should probably sell it and buy like something sweet, dry hop doser or something. But <laughs> yeah, we're able to get our beers totally clear with just just 3470 and, and some findings. And that's part of the reason is just like, I, from a DO standpoint, I worry about filtration and then from a little bit of flavor stripping. And then again, like getting back to kids gloves, the less just because they have the tools doesn't mean you necessarily need to use them, so to speak. That makes sense. Um, you know, what, what are the tricks around that? I mean, certainly there's, when you're, when you're using any yeast, the more you use it, the more you learn about it, the more you can apply the way that it works within your cellar and everything else to accomplish yep. the goals that you're looking for. And so there certainly is a lot to be said for uh, finding that tool that works for you and does the thing you want and then learning all, you know, everything you possibly can about it. Um, but in terms of that process of, uh, of lagering and then clarification, um, you know, you mentioned you just use a few, a few findings to, to kind of, uh, clean it up, but there are, are there any other tricks that you found that, uh, help push that in terms of, uh, you know, temperature or, um, kind of other strategies? Oh, well, yeah, definitely. I mean, time and temperature is your best friend when it comes to clearing up a lager, but obviously in this uh, profession, time is money. And so we're really with Pilsner trying to, uh, you know, be packaging that on day 30 of maturation. And so 
the biggest thing, honestly, that I think people overlook is selective mutation with the yeast. And so really, you're, you, if you're having a bad crop, that's just going to set you back for the next multiple generations. And so really, when you're harvesting your yeast and you're thinking about the cone and you break it down into layers and you can think, okay, closest to the bottom, okay, that's my most flocculent, worst attenuating, those ones left the party, they don't want to chew through any more sugar, they're done, they went to sleep. The middle is a nice balance of, you know, guys that want to do their job, but also, you know, ready to settle out. And then the top, man, they just want to keep ripping, want to keep through and make an ethanol. And so, you know, really making sure that we get that perfect middle layer so that we set ourselves up for the next few generations to be, you know, really good balance of flocculation and attenuation is super important. Um, I have a really good uh, system brewer, but I'm typically the only one that harvests yeast just so that it's consistent. You know, I just kind of have a rhythm to it. And, you know, it's, I don't know, you're, you feel it, the valve placement, your hands, the timing, the texture. Um, we look at pH, we try to look at vitality, and we try to never store yeast. And so we're always um, kind of purging the cone on harvest day and then going cone to cone. And so we getting back to kind of like that aerodynamic brisket talk. When we're pitching yeast, we are pitching from a tank that has been slowly stepped down. So we're running our fermentation, we're ramping, we're slowly stepping down, we're croisoning, we continue to slowly step down the temperature to maturation temperatures. And when it's about six and a half C, seven, which is about our knockout temperature, that's the day that we're harvesting. We never pitch yeast that's been stored at uh, lager temps. We never pitch yeast that's at warm temps because the last thing we want to do is put the yeast in an environment that it's like not used to, uh, whether that's temperature or, you know, a really crazy beer. And so we have really finite standards of beers that we harvest from and kind of shooting for a specific day, time and temperature. Um, but yeah, in terms of other variables, we've really found that watching our calcium load can, and I don't know if this is just haphazard, but um, really we're, we're trying to be really careful about how much calcium goes into the beer. Um, and so we did a lot of work when we were building this brewery to put in some water treatment equipment because Spokane has really high alkalinity in the water, like almost perfect for brewing stout, but I want to brew lager, baby. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we basically had to put in this really cool uh, RO that basically is a blend. And so we're able to take some of our carbon filtered water and some of our RO water and knock that alkalinity down to about 60. But with that, we lose a lot of calcium. And so I think the total calcium is like something around like 12 or 15. And so <clears throat> we, we really did some uh, tests about building that back up to a certain spot to where we're getting the kind of flavor that we like, but also getting it to a threshold where the yeast settled out better at a certain point, it was around 50. And then really looking at our knockout O2 rate, just so that that yeast was really healthy because depending on the way you're aerating your work, whether it's just air or dissolved oxygen, there's a saturation threshold. And so we really found that for knocking out the loggers as cold as we do, um, but also as fast, we wanted to go a little higher. So Pilsner, we're typically knocking out um, about 15 milligrams per liter, which is the same as parts per million. 
which is almost double what we do for you know typical pale ale. So it's quite a bit, sometimes depending on the generation, we go up to 18, but that really just reinforces that we have a nice healthy cell wall, that the yeast is really you know prepared just through the all the nutrients in the wort and the nutrients that we give in the boil and then the O2 rate really prepared to do its job. And then, yeah, we just try to really be gentle with the fermentation and I swear, if any breweries are listening, I've, we've had really good success going cone to cone. Um, we try to never harvest and store in brinks just because of pressure, um, devoid of nutrients, just temperature fluctuations. Um, so we always try to go cone to cone. And that's something that I read about in the new brewer years ago um, that they were doing. I think it was at Odell, um, cone to cone, and played around with it in the past. And, I have three brinks here. If anybody wants them, uh, I'll make you a good deal. Give me a call. But yeah. <laughs> oh man. Um, when it comes to, uh, you know, packaging or, are there any, uh, you know, tricks that you found to kind of keep everything in the beer itself and, uh, and not lose anything in that totally. process? Yeah. 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 Um, we, recently started putting our beer in cans, which was cool because the mobile can canner brought a Hawk Orbisphere. And so we could finally get some real like deal results in our beer. And I was really stoked because in the bright tank, the Pilsner was at, I think 17 parts per billion. Um, and only got up to like 25 or so like in the package. And so we were really thrilled about that. But I, I think for a brewery our size, it's a little easier when you start getting up to like, you know, a thousand hectoliter fermenters, it's a lot harder. But um, we really did a pretty extensive audit on how we were purging our bright tanks and kind of came to the conclusion that our SOP before was essentially just creating this big kind of turbulent ball of oxygen and CO2 and then even though you, we kind of did the sniff test at the vent of the arm, there is still probably quite a bit of, of oxygen in there. And so now we basically plan ahead so that we can essentially just trickle in CO2 at about 5 PSI. And we found through tests that that takes about one hour per 10 barrels on our bright tanks and we have 30s 15 30 and 45s so yeah that could take like four and a half hours but that is one thing we do just really making sure that we're getting a good purge on the bright tanks and then we also try to always do our transfers under with co pushing with co2 and never with a pump just because the pump the inlet outlet there's you know the more access points you have and connection points, and anytime something is sucking and pushing, not only do you have shear, you're cutting the beer with a bunch of little tiny knives. Um, yeah, you just have more opportunity for DO pickup, which is the reason we stopped filtering too. And so I think just doing those things is the difference between like, you know, a three month Best Buy and like a six or a nine. Um, and, and which is something that a lot of people don't think about is like, we're getting into the age where dude, everybody's canning their beer right now. And if you don't have these really good practices for minimizing your DO pickup, I think when your beer is on the shelf at a C store and it's in warm storage or something, it's like that, that's going to hurt you in the long run because it might, you know, you can't guarantee the sale because the quality might not be there. So really minimizing DO, 
deal from a packaging standpoint, I think is the biggest thing that we, we do to really keep that freshness, keep those hops popping. And I, I mean, I hope that beer isn't sitting out there for five or six months before it's sold for you because uh, it's way too delicious to let it sit <laughs> like that. Um, <laughs> but that's interesting that even when you're, uh, you know, pushing out, out of a bright into a canning line, you know, you're, you're minimizing pumps through that entire process and really just pushing under pressure. No pumps. Yep. Wow. Okay. Yep. You, you know, we, we haven't yet talked about Gozo, which was one of the things that I teased at the top here. And that is certainly the, the, one of the beers that stood out to, to us. So let's um, shift gears from Pilsner and talk a, a little bit about Goza um, yeah. in the short amount of time that we have left. Talk to me about how you um, started envisioning this idea of Goza, and certainly the idea of Goza fits within your traditional German stylistic theme. Um, one of the things that jumped out to us was just how light and delicate and nuanced and simple, you know, that your approach to Goza was, you know, it's not a mixed fermentation kind of approach to Goza, which would be probably the most traditional, you know, kind of approach, but it was also this incredibly light. It's also not what we see mostly in America, which is the word goes attached to beers that are also use heavy fruit and uh, uh, have a very hefty salinity um, to help balance out this incredible sweetness that the, they're also pushing through it. So um, talk to me a little bit about the envisioning, you know, this inspiration for this kind of light, simple, um, lightly acidic approach to Goza. Uh, and then some of the steps you took to you know, kind of design that beer. Absolutely. Yeah, it's funny because I think for, I think it's a 9.8 Plato beer. I think it's honestly one of the most challenging beers that we do just because from a process control standpoint, you have to just be on top of absolutely everything. Because at any point in from recipe development and raw material selection to, you know, we're kettle souring fermentation like if one of those boxes isn't get, isn't getting checked it can you know all the steps beforehand were for nothing and so for us we really like kind of again it's like cooking right you kind of know you're going to make this pizza and you can kind of taste this pizza in your head okay nice i got going to do red sauce going to do really nice mozzarella like the little rounds you know not just the bag shredded one and so getting really good raw materials getting really nice uh imported ingredients i think is really important because yes you could make pilsner with six row and american white wheat but at the end of the day, I think it's really important to, to stay stylistically accurate to the country of origin of the beer. And so for us, that's Weyermann Pilsner and Weyermann White Wheat and a little bit of Weyermann Acidulated. And then knowing that you're going to have this salinity and also this lactic acid, we it needs some malt because without that, it will be totally thin and the balance will be off. And so for us, it's really important to be able to develop almost like a, a light breadiness to it so that the finish isn't uh, one dimensional because this is a beer that's, even though it's like little and kind of unassuming, it's like has all these layers to it. And so being able to kind of develop some of that malt nuances is really important. And I think that gets often overlooked because everybody wants to talk about coriander or salt or the lacto. But for us, I think really fine tuning the, the malt was really important. 
And then the biggest one is just pHs and knowing that, okay, this is the pH I'm going to start at with the first step, and it's the mash pH. And this is the pH when the beer is all said and done that I want to be at. And so how do you get from start to finish? And so for us, it's really interesting because, you know, we're mashing. We still need to make fermentable extract, you know, wort. And so we're, we're really trying to hit our mash pH, again, same as pills around 5.4 to 5.5. And then we're just kind of, you can watch it slowly going down, slowly going down, slowly going down um, to the point to where we're at the kettle. And I can't remember where I read it, but I think uh, it might have been in the New Brewer again, but they talked about different pHs um, before you add your lacto because you could add it at 5.1 and then have the lacto do all the work to bring it down to your appropriate range. Um, but I believe the, the statement was that if you get it in the 4.8 range, it's below the threshold. And don't quote me on this too much because I don't want to be wrong. But it's below the threshold of uh, enzyme that could damage protein. And um, foam positive proteins. And so for us, um, it's really important that all our beers, it doesn't matter if it's uh, Pilsner, Helles, Doppelbach, uh, obviously Hef, but Goza too, like we want really stable foam. Like I love foam, you know, doing the Pilsner Urkel milk, milk pour of just a glass of foam is breakfast, you know. And so getting a Goza to have that really nice foam is a challenge and, and you don't see it too often. And so uh, for us, we try to hit that 4.8 because that's what we read somewhere. I can't remember where now, but we aim for 4.8 um, before we add our lacto. And lacto's enemy is oxygen. You want to make, I have a funny story actually, you want to make a bad goza, have too much oxygen in the wort. Um, at Kolshin in 2014, we made our first goza ever. Didn't know what we were doing, brewed it. I'm sure it had oxygen and it got to the bright tank. It tasted like baby diaper, like it was bad. And so yeah. we, uh, we blew the pressure on the bright tank all the way down to zero. We ran CO2 through the stone to kind of strip it out, packaged it, sent it to GABF, won a fucking silver medal. <laughs> so that just shows you how much oxygen is bad for uh, lacto um, in this application. And so really we try to introduce it in a couple spots. And so after we have all our wort in the kettle, we run a short boil and then we take it from, from that boiling temperature down to about um, this specific lacto strain is for us is about a hundred Fahrenheit, but they differ. Everybody kind of has their own one and some are a little warmer and some are a little cooler, but it's really important to pay attention to that. Cause if you're, if you don't introduce the lacto at the right temperature, you'll have a really hard time getting to the pH that you want. Um, but for us, and we use the Omega blend, it's about a hundred, 95, a hundred, um, Fahrenheit. But when we're cooling it down, we've basically added on our kettle kind of a little kettle souring loop. Um, so post heat exchanger, instead of like knocking out to the cellar like we normally would, we have a, a hard pipe loop right back to our kettle. And so kind of at the same time, we're whirlpooling to keep the wort moving and we're introducing this like 10C wort because we have such 
cool, you know, cold water and glycol. And so it only takes about 15 minutes. And so in that 15 minutes, we've also bubbled uh, carbon dioxide instead of adding air like you normally would at, during knockout into the carb stone. We're adding CO2 at about one bar. And then we're also adding, we added a ferrule at the top of the kettle. So the kettle manway is totally sealed. Um, there's a tri-clamp ferrule and we've built, built in um, CO2 line going to blank at the top of it. And so once we've done that and we've got down to appropriate temperature, we're fairly confident there is no oxygen. We so pitch you our lacto. you can seal off uh, uh, the totally. exhaust yeah. from, the, uh, from the kettle. Yeah, exactly. So, well, the exhaust stack itself that goes up and through the roof, that one's still open, but I'm sure by the middle of the night, you know, it's just pure CO2 coming out uh, onto the roof. Right. But uh, I know that if you have a fan, like in your exhaust stack, if you have a really um, high stack, definitely would recommend turning that on. But yeah, we add our lacto and yeah, let it rip. We've... We have all these little tricks that I just had this idea before we even bought the equipment that I'm like, hey, can you put this here? Can you put this here? So on the bottom of our kettle in the back, we have a ferrule with a zwickle. Um, it's probably like an inch or two from the bottom. And so we can come and pull a sample without opening the tank. Um, just, just pull a sample really quick and check the pH. And for us, yeah, if we knocked out around 3 p.m. or if we added the lacto around 3 p.m. It's usually the next morning around four or five. And so it's like, how quick can you get out of bed, get back to the brewery and, and turn the steam on. But that's with the Omega. Um, we've also that's not a tried. Bad, that's a not, not a bad little, uh, like, you know, production idea to pop that in as your second brew of the day or, you know, oh, third, totally. You know, and then, uh, then just let it ride overnight and it's done first thing in the next morning. And yeah, absolutely. Which is really nice because, you know, there's nothing worse than like sitting there and checking the pH, you know, once an hour for two days, like that's happened too. And it's kind of like waiting for your wife to have a baby or something. It's like, is it now? Is it now? Is it now? You're just waiting to turn that steam on. But uh, yeah, we've, we basically added at the bottom of our kettle too, next to the, um, the Zwickle, kind of like a CO2 nipple. So we'll rouse it a little bit just so the pH doesn't stratify in there. Because in the past, we have seen that like, okay, pull a sample, it's at 3.3, it's time to go. Then as soon as you turn the kettle on and you have those convectional currents and it starts mixing up, you see the pH just creep up and up and up because the p level of the pH is kind of stratified within the kettle. And so you get almost like a false reading. And so we, we try to rouse a little bit so that we know that uh, the pH is really homogenized in there. And then, yeah, once, once the pH is where you're at and you want to bring it up to a boil, it's kind of just like every other beer, you know, we try to run kind of an intermediate boil just because there is Pilsner malt in there. So not too short, but also not too long. We don't want to be too aggressive with it. And then we hop it pretty lightly. That was funny. Cause I was, you know, trying to scale the recipe down for five gallon batches and it does not compute. You know, it's just like, <laughs> it, that's like two hop pellets. Yeah. You know, it's like so little, but, um, I loved it. We I, had to, we had to go to uh, two decimal places in order to yeah. get uh, the to the level of delicacy that you're trying to achieve with this one. Yeah, yeah. which I think makes a huge difference because if you round that number up and then it's like, well, now you suddenly have 
you know, at, at on a five gallon batch that much more hops and it, it just throws off the beer. But for us, I, 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 I just had this like epiphany one day yeah. that, okay, Huel melon. Like, I think that is the perfect hop for Goza because you have a little bit of like the honeydew melon flavor, almost like uh, strawberry jam a little bit. And then, b- but without being aggressive. And so many of these like American hops are so aggressive that they're not going to fit in. But then at the same time, um, so many of the other German classic hops are almost too herbal or spicy and, and having a little fruitiness in the Goza gives it again, it's a beer of, of intricacies and nuances. It just gets, gives it another level of depth. And so that, that has been really nice for us. I would be curious how it would be with Mandarina Bavaria um, or Kalista. Those are two kind of other fun fruity hops from Germany. Yeah. Uh, and then, Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to keep the process rolling here. Um, uh... Yeah. And then, yeah, so um, we'll knock out kind of cool. And then we ferment with a Kolsch yeast. And so we use here the Lalamon Kolsch. And so we'll have had it propped up almost just like a big starter. We'll get a, you know, a barrel or two of wort from a previous Pilsner batch. And we'll prop up the Kolsch yeast and then kind of, again, get it to a point where the temperature is uh, enough of the yeast has settled out so that we're not pitching that whole one barrel. Um, but it has all gone all the way through its, its fermentation and the, in the propagation and the yeast has settled out and then we'll pitch that at knockout. And again, we're aiming for kind of a high cell count cause I like to ferment kind of cool with all these beers. And so we'll typically knock out at 15 C and let it free rise to 17 and aim for a knockout uh, cell count of 1 million cells per milliliter per degree Play-Doh. And so that ends up, yeah, being right around 10 million cells. And then again, just giving it a nice kind of, you don't want to overdo this one with, with the O2 rate, but still you're putting it in a pretty uh, <laughs> toxic environment. But we have found um, that the Kolsch yeast is, does really well in fermenting the, uh, the highly acidic worts, which is something that's really cool. You can use 1056. We've done in the past. I feel though the 1056 is just a little bit more one dimensional. Yeah. Uh, what's the, what's the goal for finishing pH on this? Totally. Um, or TA, us, it, I don't know. Yeah. yeah no, for us for pH, it's all, uh, we're going for like between 3.3 and 3.4. Okay. So I, I think that obviously, uh, you know, those little differences at that point in the pH can make a huge difference. But uh, for us, we found that like if the pH is at 3.3, when we turn on the steam, it drifts up a little bit throughout the course of the boil. And so we're knocking out around 3.35. And then depending on the fermentation, it'll either sometimes stay right around there, if not sometimes drift down only to drift back up a little bit. So it's, it's pretty incredible because it's just, that is a hearty yeast and it is able to really, you know, fully attenuate down to, I like it. It's still pretty dry for a beer. So it finishes around 1.92 Play-Doh. Um, and that is a beer that again, getting back to our force fermentation test, we'll pull a sample and kind of have an expected terminal gravity so that we can spoon that tank about, um, we do that one about one Play-Doh above terminal. So you don't force carb that one either. That one's spunded. 
I'll tell you one thing that I told my assistant brewer, like I'll take every damn carb stone out of the tanks. If you ever use them, <laughs> like no carb stones ever. Like, okay. Uh, and that's for two reasons. One with the whole, you know, COVID everything being so weird, the, the quality of CO2 has gone down dramatically. And so you have to consider if you're a brewer CO2 as an ingredient. And if you're putting CO2 into your beer and you don't know the quality of it, then you're, you could potentially contaminate your beer. And so for CO2 that we do use, um, we have a bulk tank, we filter it all and you can see the line going into the CO2 filters and the line coming out and they're noticeably different. And that's only because with um, CO2 is kind of a byproduct of uh, oil refinement. And so if you suddenly switch refineries, which is what happened recently on the West Coast, and now I believe most of it is coming out of Utah, and depending on how that refinery does it, you could get a lower grade. And then suddenly it's not beverage grade, but your salesman tells you it is, fills your bulk tank. And then uh, you'll see kind of this brown oily um, buildup. And so if I don't want to put that in my beer personally. Um, so we don't use our carb stones at all. But <laughs> that was kind of a long-winded way of saying, you know what, Jamie? I love natural carbonation. I think it, <laughs> I think it helps with foam. I think it helps with mouthfeel. You know, I think it's more traditional and it's free. There's a softness to it that I think that, um, you know, is contributed to in some way from that. And, you know, that that is a lower pH than I expect, you know, um, you know from the kind of, perceptible you know level of drinking it i would not think that it was that low in ph because i would typically you know associate a 3.3 ph with something that was more aggressively bitey you know in its acidity and so that roundedness that you're achieving through the malt component and you know through this kind of co2 component and you know potentially also because you know uh, carbonic acid is an acid and can certainly yep. impact those other kinds of, you know, sharpness in, in that flavor. Uh, you know, I suspect that all of those things are contributing in some positive way to kind of producing that rounded, uh, you know, approach that the, the Goza has, which, you know, makes it just a fantastic beer. And so I'm not saying you're wrong. I think you're doing it right. Obviously, uh, you know, we've tasted and, and, and found it to be fantastic. And so, uh, um, but that is an interesting kind of, you know, case, especially with the, the current state of CO2 as a result of, you know, what's, uh, what's happening out there through COVID and refineries and everything else. Yeah. And it's, it's tough to pour on draft because it's sometimes, uh, depending on the batch, it will be like 3.1 volumes of CO2. Um, but I feel like that kind of almost like a nice German vice beer, like that spritziness is again, just another element to the beer. So you can keep adding these layers. And I think the acidity would be accentuated more if it was at a lower carbonation, just because everything is a little bit more muted. But when you have that high spritziness, it's kind of like your palate is not getting shocked by the acidity. The first thing that it gets is this shock of the bubbles. And so that kind of brings everything, they kind of all marry together in your mouth and, and there's no sharp edges, so to speak. Uh, it's working, Sam. Um, and Thank it's you, a, brother. It's a, and it's a beautiful beer. And, um, you know, the restraint that you show towards it and the simplicity, um, 
that allows the kind of smaller complexities to shine in the beer. And that's um, just something that is so beautiful in a such a light, low ABV, flavorful, um, but confident kind of beer. So uh, I love it. Nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with GD Chillers. Try Leopold Brothers Malt from BSG. Pros inquire about a free craft brew sample pack from Five Star Chemicals and Supply. Grandstand is your one-stop shop for drinkware, apparel, and promotional items. ABS Commercial is giving away a Keg Viking Keg Washer live on December 5th. And subscribe now to Craft Beer and Brewing to support this very podcast and to read Sam's Brewer's Perspective on Bringoza and also uh, check out the homebrew scaled recipe that he provided us in this most latest issue. If you are a subscriber to the magazine, those will be hitting uh, uh, next week. I think they uh, go November 7th through 11th for in-home delivery to subscribers. But if you are a subscriber, then you also already have access to that digital issue. Sam, thanks for uh, chatting with me about uh, Brewing Pilsner and Brewing Goza. It's, uh, you made my job easy. I didn't, I, I'm wondering how many questions I asked through the course of this, which is uh, absolutely brilliant, but it's that same kind of focus on, uh, on all the technical details that uh, I think makes you as compelling a brewer as you are. Um, if people want to learn more about Brick West, uh, where, where do they find you all? in uh, in real life and uh, out there on the internets totally yeah real life would be awesome uh we're in downtown spokane on first avenue kind of near brown's edition but if you want to find us on the interwebs kind of virtual beer you can find us at brickwestbrewingco.com and also on instagram and facebook i think it's brickwest beer but i really appreciate you having me on man I've really been blessed with the opportunity to work for this brewery, but then also to submit the beers to you guys and have such great feedback in our first year has been really exciting for us. And to all your, to your readers, the, the beer brewers and the beer drinkers is, you know, thank you guys for doing what you do. Uh, it lets us do our job. So thanks so much, man. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, it's our pleasure, Sam. And uh, all I can say is you set the the bar high for yourself. So uh, okay. I hope you're up for uh, ch- the challenge of, uh, of keeping it there. And uh, my God, if you can move it any higher, then uh, I, I, I can't wait to see what you can come up with. Okay. <laughs> well, no, thanks for chatting me on the podcast. Uh, cheers. Of course. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.